Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. We're two mothers with a total of seven kids ages 1 to 17 and two PhDs in English. I'm an assistant professor of English and a program director. And I'm an acquisitions editor for an academic press. In the 10 years that we've known each other and seen our families grow, we've often found it difficult to relate to our families what it's like to be an academic and to relate to our colleagues what it's like to have kids. So during this pandemic, we decided to start this podcast to counter our own isolation and hopefully connect with other parents in academia. Thanks so much for being here and lending us your ears for about the next hour. So, Judith, how was your holiday season? Now that things are kind of calming down and it's 2021, uh, care to share anything with our listeners? Did you do anything special? Nothing special here. It felt very busy, even though um, we weren't doing that much. But I still didn't get to relax as much as I would have liked. I was really looking forward to reading more. I read a book. I got to do some other fun things. I was really hoping to get to do a little bit more of that. So it still seemed really packed and busy and stressful. How was yours? I always feel actually weirdly sort of adrift when I don't have a lot of things to do. And as much as work kind of stresses me out, I miss having like a project to work on. So, you know, it's 2021. I have been sort of scouring social media for inspiration. Um, I see a lot about, you know, being really super positive in the new year. I think that's all great and it can be helpful, but with one sort of major caveat. Um, And we've noted this before, but this is something that you said probably to me last week when I was talking about 2021. I mean, nothing's been solved. It's just, you know, time is a construct. Nothing has changed other than we turn the calendar to a new month and a new year. We're still in a crisis. It's still a pandemic. And so saying everything is great, it's it's just not true. And that kind of brings us to the topic of this episode, which is toxic positivity. That's not to be confused with toxic productivity, but this was a term that was somewhat new to me once again, but it's a behavior I've observed for a long time in my personal life, in the workplace, and the behavior bothers me. It's not that I'm negative per se. I'd actually define myself more of a realist than anything, but Judith, you had a pretty good working definition of toxic positivity. What is this? And how does this tie in with everything that's been going on in today's current events? Yeah, so toxic positivity is usually defined as a societal construct or the assumption that a person, despite whatever emotional pain or gravity of their situation they might experience, should always strive to have a positive outlook on things. So there's this sort of pressure from social media and and other places, like you've mentioned, interactions with other people, to always look at the bright side of things, to have a positive outlook. And you and I have both agreed that that's not always helpful or useful or really the best way to approach things. So yeah, I agree that this is something interesting for us to talk about today and to think a little bit more about. I think it's really important to consider in this context that we are currently experiencing a global pandemic and that that has sort of the implication of a collective trauma that we're all going through. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of anxiety that we can sort of see emanate through social media and in our interactions with other people. And I feel like I talk about social media a lot now, but it also feels like outside of my own family, that's sort of almost the only quote unquote interaction that I have with other people. And there's a lot of grief. The primary grief is sort of the loss of people that have passed away or that have gotten really sick. But there are also smaller things that we grieve, like lost holidays, lost vacation plans, having to 
re-envision our holiday celebrations with our children. Our children miss their friends. So there's a lot of sadness and grief involved in that. And the pressure and the expectation to just sort of be positive during this enormous crisis just really invalidates individual emotions. It's just so important, to, and especially, I think, in modeling for our children, too. It's so important to give room to all of our emotions. Suppressing negative emotions often then has more negative consequences where we're feeling shame or guilt or embarrassment for having these supposedly negative emotions. So part of this is a sense of certain emotions are generally evaluated as negative. You were not supposed to be angry. We're not supposed to be sad. We're not supposed to feel depression. And so with this pressure to feel more positive, there's then the attached sense that, oh, not only am I sad or angry or resentful, I now load on top of that the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment of not sort of just wishing that away. People who have this toxic positivity always use the term just. Oh, you just need to be positive. You just need to look at it in a different way. So there's a lot of additional embarrassment and other negative emotions that are sort of piled on to the negative emotions that we already have because we're not able to sort of rein those in. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And as you mentioned, it's not just that I'm on social media all the time, but as of right now, that seems to be the common conduit for connecting with people since we're not meeting up for coffee or maybe gathering around the workplace cooler, so to speak. Social media is where a lot of this happens. And it seems to me, once we kind of become familiar with these common sort of toxic positivity cues, you start to see them everywhere. Over on Instagram, there's 100 million hashtag good vibes posts alone, if you can believe that. And it's often when we're on social media, if someone posts a negative experience, they're often met with this like blanket optimism. And I get that people are trying to be really well-intentioned, But it can be really disheartening to hear these types of messages. I know that when my own father passed on, there are a lot of those blanket comments like he's in a better place, he's out of pain now, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't really find those helpful, right? It's just like you were saying, I was going through grief. I don't think I needed to sort of like smooth out the edges and paste a smile on my face and say, I'm going to be positive about it. I mean, it was horrible. It's a horror to watch someone that you know and love go through cancer. I do think it's worth noting that when my father was sick and when I did lose him, social media did not play such a large role in my life. So a lot of the sort of blanket optimistic statements were more word of mouth. Beyond losing a parent or a loved one to cancer or some other horrible disease, however, there are a lot of things that happen in our day-to-day lives in our professional and personal spaces that are posted and shared via social media and then are kind of met with these subsequent sort of blanket optimistic statements about just buck up or just move forward, that kind of thing. We see a lot of these sort of like little quote, almost like hashtag type takeaways. Like if you've had a bad day at work, the feedback is, well, at least you still have a job. Or if you're going through a breakup, it's like, oh, don't worry, you'll find someone else. Um, 
you don't like your house or your living situation, well, say at least you're not homeless. I also saw a story which I was thinking about, which said something like uh, this person was a drug addict and homeless and they graduated. And I think the takeaway was something the quote was like, if I can do it, anyone can. And I think that is a great message, but I don't think that's a true message, right? The whole point is that no, not everyone can do it. That's why you're special. That's why you're unique, right? That's why that's an empowering story. The point is that this person went through a lot of trial and tribulation and made it. And so I just don't think it's helpful to say if I can do it, anyone can do it because that's not true. Judith, it sounds like we're both pretty familiar now with what these sort of toxically positive messages look like online, whether they come in the form of hashtag wisdom or maybe short stories that are posted. But what should I look for if I think I might be toxically positive? Are there signs and symptoms of toxic positivity in our day-to-day behaviors that I should be on the lookout for? in terms of signs of toxic positivity, then would be, you know, these kinds of things that are encouraging you to sort of disavow your own sense of anxiety, grief, fear, anger, resentment, any of those feelings. If it's look at how much worse other people have it, what are you complaining about? That is the kind of thing that can become toxic. It has a lot of consequences. It leads to us sort of masking our own true feelings it leads to an inability to really sit with the discomfort. I think that's some of those examples that you were mentioning earlier too, the kinds of things that people say when you're feeling down or you're feeling upset about something and they're just like, oh, just move on with it. Just look at the bright side. Just think about how much worse you could be. But I feel like that's hanging the bar pretty low. Like this is a question of, yes, this pandemic is awful and it's important to acknowledge that. And it's important to acknowledge that a lot of people have passed away, which means a lot of people have lost dear and loved family members. And that's really, really awful. And my heart goes out to people that have gone through that. At the same time, these other emotions that we have over here are also caused by the pandemic. They're also acceptable. And I kind of felt between Christmas and New Year's that there was so much processing that I still had to do where 2020 was such a difficult year for me in a lot of ways. I didn't, I haven't lost anybody. Nobody has gotten sick. So it hasn't been difficult in those like hardest of hard ways, but it was just nine months of a lot of difficulty that just kept piling on and piling on. And for me personally, it's important to process those emotions and not to minimize them or to disavow them just because other people have it worse. I've gone over some of the signs of toxic positivity, and this is actually comes from an article by the psychology group, and you'll link that in the show notes. Some of the signs that I mentioned already is hiding your true feelings, trying to just get on with it, feeling guilty or ashamed for the emotions that you have, minimizing your own experiences or especially other people's experiences with like feel good quotes or statements. And then trying to give someone perspective, the the entire sort of it could be worse perspective, instead of just allowing them to go through what their emotional experience is and really process all of it. This is sort of a related point. Telling other people how much worse they could be off does have the effect of sort of shaming them and shaming, shaming others for their emotions. And I think these are conversations where we have to be really mindful about how we're talking to people that are expressing any sort of emotion that is often perceived as negative. And then the the last sign that they list in this article is to brush off things that are bothering you with just the sort of it is what it is, like stoic sense of I can't do anything about it, so I might as well just 
deal with it, but not acknowledging your own sort of emotional responses to them. This kind of ties back, I think, to the emotional labor episode that we had. It can become really, really exhausting to constantly sort of put on a happy face and suppress these emotions or invalidate them. And I think the consensus among some psychologists, and especially the ones that wrote the article that I just was talking about, is that toxic positivity is an unhelpful coping technique because the more we mask our feelings, the worse and more fatigued we will eventually feel. So there's this sort of consequence that suppressing the broad range of emotions that we feel can be very exhausting. Erin, you mentioned earlier that this is something that you've experienced from other people, um, both on the job and in your personal life. Can you talk a little bit more about some examples that you have in mind? Well, in the family life, comparative type statements to hear about how someone else had it really, really bad. I just don't think those are super helpful for my sister or myself. And don't get me wrong, I am entirely grateful for the life I have right now. Like you said, I haven't lost anyone to COVID. We have all been quite healthy. I have had a number of relatives who have had it, but who were able to make their way through it and have regained their health now. That being said, there's just a lot of things happening right now that are still stressful, anxiety-inducing. There are a lot of things that cause my own fear about the future, even the current election situation. Just when I think everything's sorted, there's going to be another, you know, <laughs> there's another stumbling block or something going on. And it just, it seems like to be an awful lot. And for people to say something to me like, well, you should just be really happy and grateful. I am happy and grateful, but you know, we're not just one emotion all the time, right? Like we're often experiencing a number of emotions. So while it is true, I can be grateful and happy for the things I do have. I still am experiencing fear. I'm still feeling a bit of anxiety about the future. I still get really nervous at night thinking about, okay, my children are going back to -to face-to-face school again soon. How's that going to pan out? I love the way that you put that, that we're never just one emotion. And I think as moms, we already knew this before the pandemic. I don't think I've ever experienced multiple emotions at the same time, quite in the same way as I have since becoming a mother. But what's important for me and what I want to point out, too, is that those negative emotions are really can be very useful and meaningful in telling us what matters to us. Whenever I find myself sort of stuck in negative emotions, I do try to think about what does this tell me about what matters to me, what's important to me, and maybe what kinds of changes I want to make in my life as well, right? So these negative experiences are full of potential opportunity to sort of reflect on our lives and reflect on what's going on and potentially make changes. And I don't want to put the spin on it where the negative has to be turned into something positive. But I do think it is a source of knowledge. When I was when we were preparing for this episode, I started thinking back to the Socrates quote. I don't know if you know that one, probably an unexamined life is not worth living. I think that those negative emotions, they are there to tell us something. And I've heard that in different places recently, too. Jessica Lee said it on the What First Help podcast, where she was talking about anxiety specifically. And there were some other places where I've heard this, too, about anger and grief. You're not lying awake at night wondering about 
you know, who's going to win in The Bachelorette. You're not lying awake wondering about who's going to win American Idol. You might lie awake and wonder about how your kids are going to make it through the next week of school, because those are the things that matter to us, right? And so I think that's important. And if we just drone that, that stuff out, and if we just drone out those negative emotions that we might have, then we're losing, we're preventing ourselves from accessing those learning moments that can help us make changes. And then, you know, something that you had already sort of gestured toward earlier too, I also would identify as a realist. I think most people will call me a pessimist. I think I'm being realistic. That's sort of the type of personality that I am and that I have and that I've always had. When people say that to me, oh, you just have to have a better outlook, it almost feels like a rejection of my personality because I identify with that actually quite strongly. So when people suggest to me that if only I didn't look at the negative things so much, I would be happier, that can be frustrating to me. And it feels like a personal rejection sometimes. And I actually, you know, I do certain things like gratitude practice because I do think that sometimes I could be more um, more positive. And I've done that for a long time and it hasn't really changed my general outlook on life. And so a lot of this like toxic positivity, my assumption is that that's probably something that the more positive people are trying to put on the rest of us when the fact of the matter is we're not all equally inclined to look at things in that way. Not only does it sort of flatten out our own personality and reduce us to um, one emotion, it also sort of flattens the variability among people to where we're all sort of um, becoming more in line with this like one personality trait that is idealized in a certain way. And again, like so many other things, it's a continuum. It's a spectrum model, right? That not every person is a 10 out of 10 positive. There is not 10 out of 10 negative. We're, we all fall somewhere on a continuum. And I would say that probably changes vastly depending on so many other factors, right? From everything to experiencing postpartum hormones for some of us women, but to what the seasons are like. I know that greatly affects my mood and how I'm feeling. I just think to sort of grossly generalize that people are either like super, super positive or negative. I, I absolutely agree with you. I think we're all kind of on this continuum model. And I don't think it's helpful, again, to reject a person's personality, right? We are who we are. We can't say one is better and one is worse. No, we all just have different personalities. And so I could see where that would be very frustrating to a person when others around them are like, well, just buck up. You know, it's like that idea of rugged individualism. If you are a more introspective intellectual person, we've read all these like pretty deep novels about the pain and suffering of so many different people across the timelines that it's hard sometimes to like really be upbeat all the time. And I, I can relate to that as well. When you're talking about parenting, I don't want to steamroll all of my children's moods. I don't want to like come to them if they're crying and upset or they're fearful. I don't want to just tell them, hey, just buck up. I think that's very dismissive when my daughter is telling me I'm really scared about the future and I'm really upset and I can't sleep and I'm nervous about going back to school. I'm certainly not going to tell an 11 year old, you know, just move on. So why would we tell <laughs> an adult? Fine. Yeah. Why yeah. would we, t why would we do the same thing to an adult? That doesn't make sense. You know, to just say, well, uh, I'm your, your feelings are in, invalid. Just try to be more positive. I, I don't think that works. It doesn't work as a parent and it shouldn't work for interactions with friends or colleagues or siblings, anything like that. So did look at a little bit into 
research on gratitude practice and the benefits that it has. And the result there was gratitude practice is beneficial because it leads to a more positive outlook. And so that's kind of the thing that we're that we're thinking about that's interesting to me, sort of like how these studies are set up. One that wants to prove that gratitude practice is a positive thing. The end result is the positive outlook. Is that what we define as mental health? So I think that's interesting to think about what sort of the ultimate ideal becomes. Are we all striving for happiness? A lot of these conversations where the obvious goal is, well, if you just have a better outlook on life, you'll be happier, almost seem to tie back to me to the Constitution where the pursuit of happiness is sort of like the primary principle. But is that really, you know, the number one goal for all of us? Or what is what, you know, what can we say about a life where we allow all of these different emotions to sort of coexist at the same time? Do you have any thoughts on that? Or should we switch gears a little bit and talk about how we see this impacting the different areas of our life? What do you think? Where should we take the conversation from here? Yeah, I mean, I feel like you're getting into some deep sort of ethical and philosophical considerations. What is happiness? Once again, happiness to me might be very, very different from your understanding of happiness, right? Like I even feel like to be happy is something that I, I would be curious to see, like, how do you define that even, right? Because I might be happy with a good book and my spouse might be happy with, you know, some hand tools. We all find our happiness in different things. My second follow-up is, don't we need to be unhappy sometimes? Don't we need to be miserable, upset, cross, all those negative emotions to evoke social change so that we do something about some of the evils in the world? I mean, if we're all just like happy floating around in this utopia, I don't think things would ever change. I think that's a really important point and something that we need to keep in mind when we see all these things like, you know, do what you love, love what you do or whatever. There is the implication that your happiness is your own personal responsibility. And that, I think, has become more and more so, you know, over the last like 20 or 30 years, where it's also then linked to neoliberal discourse or this neoliberal paradigm where we don't want to ever identify any sort of social issues and address them on a systematic level. We want people to sort of solve them on their own, be in charge of their own health and well-being and happiness. And in an ideal scenario, there's going to be a product or two that you can buy to accomplish that, right? And so I think there is a systemic interest in this toxic positivity discourse to turn it over to the to the people themselves, to make it their own responsibility and to tell them, well, if you just look at it in a different way, then it's all not so bad. And that way, I think you're absolutely right in that. There's no, you know, we're not allowed to share our negative experiences. I'm polemically speaking, obviously, but there's sort of the this preventative layer that makes it so so that we're uncomfortable sharing our negative with emotions with other people that might have the same negative experiences. Everybody is sort of upbeat and um, flattening these the diverse emotions that we might feel. And so there's that disrupts conversations about larger issues. And that disrupts conversations about what we can do to change those larger issues. I think you're absolutely right about that. And that's actually one of like my main beefs with toxic positivity. 
Yeah, I don't want to go like off on a real huge Marxist slant here, but I just keep thinking about how it's very easy to be happy and complacent when one is in a comfortable middle class existence. This could be really interesting to sort of think about this from a philosophical perspective, but also from a Marxist perspective and from a political perspective as well, because I think a lot of this does happen to be tied to class. This capitalistic country we live in ties a lot of our emotional state of being to what we buy and purchase. And if I just get this one more thing, then I'll really be set. Just think about the incredible number of items that you can purchase that have that message printed on them. So like it's right there. It's right there in the good vibes only product where you can spend money to make yourself feel better by wearing a shirt that says good vibes only on it. So I think this is kind of we're like looking at this from this like really macro level. What I was kind of interested in thinking about, too, is if this idea of positivity plays a role in our jobs, especially in the world of higher education and the ancillary sort of world of scholarly publishing that you're in. Does this sort of start to bleed into our work at all? And if so, what does that look like for us? How can that impact our day to day? One thing that I might say is just sometimes, especially in like a corporate environment where the job keeps really busy and the the workload is high, there's not a lot of time to notice your discontent or to identify if you have any discontent where that comes from. And especially with sort of how 2020 went and how it how slowly it went and how fast it went at the same time. For me, there was sort of like a numbing to all of those things because I just had have basically gone down to like basic functioning in the day-to-day environment. And so there's a sense there that like if everything is always good and you just look at the bright side and you just are happy about the fact that you still have a job and that I'm able to work from home and have my kids home and all those things, it becomes easier not to sort of listen to your body and your everything else when it comes to sort of noticing if there is anything that's maybe not optimal and then identifying what that may be and what you can do to fix that or change that. So that's one way that I could think of in sort of like the work life in general. And I think that the overloading applies sort of to all kinds of different jobs. It doesn't have to be academia, but just the busy, hectic schedules of working moms, organizing all of the different activities and taking care of the kids during the day. And regardless of whether that's during a pandemic or not, sitting with those negative emotions and allowing them to sort of take space and and giving them that that room in order to have that learning opportunity that I was talking about earlier takes time and sort of quiet and peace, at least for me it does. And that's a rare commodity these days. So I think that's something for the work life where um, it's easy to fall into that um, positivity trap, if you will, and never really take the time to, to think a little bit deeper. Does that make sense? For sure. And I think across the board over in the, you know, college workspace, I mean, things aren't just not going well for a lot of higher learning institutions right now. We see a lot of layoffs, we see a lot of job cuts. And so I think what we're going to see and continue to see is more and more people taking on more and more roles. And you said just kind of go, 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 feeling really stressed out and burned out. But at the same time, 
person still has a job. So they have to just keep taking on more and more and more and stay really positive about it because they still are employed. But it just seems like I could see people becoming more frustrated and sad and not really knowing why. But at the same time, they have to be optimistic because they have this job, right? And they have this role. I kind of wanted to go back in time a little bit and think about, you know, I know we have at least a few listeners who are still working on their dissertation or maybe even pre-dissertation mode. I wanted to sort of connect this to our lives as graduate students. The idea that there were some pretty awful times, at least for me, as I tried to like make my way to the final defense. And do we kind of attempt to like smooth over all that and just say, eh, it's all part of the process. Our predecessors had to go through all this really hard, scrupulous looking over by their different committee members. And I think there's a sense that like since they went through it, we have to go through it as well. Do you think that there's sort of a toxic positivity vibe in grad school? at all? Well, that's a that's a tough question. Uh, I think so, probably. I know that for my personal experience, there was a lot of sort of discontent and struggle that I wasn't maybe necessarily able to put my finger on. A lot of my friends also were sort of reflective people and were willing to sit with the discomfort. So I had people that I was able to talk to and to think through a lot of that experience. When you're trying to relate this to people that aren't in the academy, it's hard to really translate that into their experiences. Because I think for people that are looking at the academy from the outside, it looks like a really easy life. And, you know, if I'm thinking back, I spend a lot of time getting together with friends for coffee or whatever, um, chatting before and after class. Those were kind of enjoyable times so I can understand their perspective. But just the difficulty of sort of taking these really challenging classes, imposter syndrome, struggling with trying to figure out what the dissertation topic should be, having to deal with sort of having to redo different research parts of the dissertation, you know, getting negative feedback on drafts and whatnot. Those things are all really difficult. And for at least for me, my experience was that people that were sort of outside of this academic environment didn't really get that. And they would not understand what my difficulty was and then sort of fall into this sort of positivity talk. Look at how lucky you are. You're in grad school. Look at, you know, what other people's lives are like. I think maybe that's where it's located for me. I think that within my academic environment, I had more people that were willing to help me work through some of the challenges that I had where at from I wasn't able to take those difficulties and talk to other people about them. Does that make sense? I can see that because a lot of what I experienced when I was kind of stalled out was just just write it, get it done. What's wrong? Yeah. You know, just just yeah. do it. Why are I don't understand or I don't understand you have written a lot. Why aren't you just done? Because for me it was a matter of write 50 pages and none of it was good, write another 50 pages and that wasn't. And I think so on the one hand, definitely maybe on the home front and from people outside of the academy, I got that feedback like, why isn't it just done? You write, you are a writer. What are you talking about? Why can't you just finish this? And without like kind of understanding the nuances of what it means to write in that way and research and, you know, in our field, this like very abstract theoretical thread or argument connecting your chapters. It's not something where you have data, you have a data set, and then you're going to kind of interpret the data. It's like creating something out of nothing, which is another conversation. 
And then I do want to be a sort of blunt here and say, I, as much as we had a really awesome network of peers and colleagues that I was able to express these things with, I don't feel like there's always a space and a place within the academy for the graduate students to be able to express some of these negative feelings that they have. So now that we've sort of talked and went back in time and talked a little bit about grad school and a little bit how this can play out in today's current professional climate that includes academia, but also just corporate America, what, if anything, can we take away from this to think about in our parenting practices? I think it's a really important lesson to teach our kids to sit with the discomfort of the negative emotions and to just kind of allow them to have those as well. I think a lot of times... I find myself, you know, with a tantrum that I, you know, or somebody is crying, somebody is sad, somebody's upset. As parents, we love them. We don't want them to have those negative feelings. And so we try to help them out of those negative feelings, maybe sometimes a little too quickly. So I have been trying to really give them the space to have those negative emotions and then just sort of indicate that I'm there when when they if and when they decide that they need me. And so what's really important there too and I don't want to get off on a tangent or into a whole nother deep conversation, but I think it's important to recognize that a lot of what we label as negative emotions is very gendered where it's okay for boys to be angry but it's not okay for girls to be angry. And then the opposite is true for sadness. It's okay for, you know, for girls to express sadness, but not for boys. And so I think in order to allow our kids and to show our kids how to grow into full human beings that have the full experience of what it means to be a functioning human being, we have to teach them early that it is okay and acceptable to have those emotions. And maybe even what I was saying earlier, that they can teach us something about what's important to us and what matters to us and what we're afraid of losing. And I think an important factor with that always is to model that, right? So I think it's helpful to allow our kids to see that we sometimes have negative emotions and to acknowledge them and to label them. I think labeling emotions is really important and to help our kids in that way. I do think it's very healthy. I think it's necessary. I grew up in a household where I never saw my father cry. I never saw him cry once in my entire life. And I just think that's really weird. And the one time he did cry, I wasn't at home. And I was like, I might have told you this. I was like really sad. I missed out on it. Like I wanted to see. (laughs) I mean, I wanted to see it. In some ways, obviously, this is like totally not a good medical opinion, but my dad never showed a lot of emotion. And I think and sometimes like that festered in him and then he dies this like horrible death of cancer. But like to me, what I noticed in my life is when I was trying to hold back all those emotions, that's when I got the really bad anxiety. All the stuff that I was keeping on the inside, like when I talked about him going through this traumatic ordeal of cancer, that's when I had my first panic and anxiety attacks. And I didn't know what was happening, but I think it was because it was all this stress and fear and grief and sadness forced inward. It it, it creeps out. You can't keep it in there, right? And I think that's pretty psych 101, right? But you can't just keep stuffing down all these negative emotions and stuffing them in there. They have to have an outlet. And if you don't actually let them out, then it manifests, like I said, in, you know, 
panic and generalized anxiety disorder, which is no fun for a child. So I think you're absolutely right. We have to like let them know that it's okay to go through those things. I'd rather have them have a tantrum or whatever it is, screaming, crying, you know, being upset than like trying to keep it all inward. And so I think that's really important that we let them have that space. I know though, it's easy for me to say because I think, um, fingers crossed, we're sort of out of that temper tantrum moment in my family. It's a lot easier for me to say again, like, okay, they do pass eventually, eventually. (laughs) Well, I think, but I think a big, a big part of that is whether the kids learn appropriately to identify their emotions and to deal with them and to process them. Right. Because that's the idea that like the toddler tantrum is like the kid doesn't know, you know, what something there's some, something emotionally is going on, but the kid doesn't know what it is. And so, you know, once they turn whatever, six, seven, eight, and they have a better language and they have a better understanding of how their body works and what their body feels like in different scenarios and how to solve those problems. And I think they're learning this a lot more at school than we used to. The idea is that the kids grow out of it because they get better with handling those emotions and and identifying them and recognizing them. You know, allowing those negative emotions to kind of take place and to to live them out keeps you from you stuffing it all down there, like you said. And then at some point, it just sort of all comes out. Uh, We've covered a lot of interesting material here, and I think there are some more connections that we could tease out even further. I think we've done a good job of like sort of starting off this conversation. And I don't know, what do you think? Yeah. Um, when you're talking about children too, I thought it would be kind of a great idea to sort of end the episode or think about, you had some interesting examples of what someone that's being sort of toxically positive would say, as opposed to something that would be non-toxic, something that sort of validates whether it is a colleague's frustration or a child's frustration or a spouse or other loved one. I thought these were really helpful because as I noted, I think we all have probably said one of these comments or more without really thinking about it. And I think that's key, right? Once we're sort of aware of what this is, and it's not always necessarily a good thing, maybe we can take a moment or take a pause to kind of think about, no, I'm not just going to tell my friend, just stay positive. Instead, kind of giving them a moment to say, no, I'm listening to you and I understand what you're feeling. Tell me more. So do you want to maybe give us a couple of examples of that before we move on today? Yeah, I think the classic examples you've already brushed over, don't worry, be happy is one of them. Just stay positive. Everything will work out in the end. Positive vibes, you know, don't be negative. Don't be so negative. Don't be a negative Nancy or whatever they say. Um, And then the other one that you mentioned, the sort of if I can do it, then so can you. Looking for the silver lining. Um, Where's the silver lining? We've all sort of that's something I think that, you know, everybody has found the silver lining of the pandemic. Now, everything happens for a reason. And then the extra classic is, you know, it could be could be worse. Think about how much worse you could have it. I think those are all ways of not allowing another person that space to to have the negative emotion. And so, you know, we can think about what kinds of terms or phrases we could replace that with. And so some of the suggestions that I found were things like, describe what you're feeling. I'm here. I'm listening. I'm here for you, whether you have good or bad things to share. You're not alone. I see you. I'm here for you. 
How can I support you during this hard time? I'm so sorry that you're going through this. Those are all expressions that recognize and acknowledge the negative emotion that another person is going through. And what I find so poignant about these examples is that there's not an attempt there to solve it. I think a lot of times this goes back to what I was saying about our kids. When our kids are upset or angry or unhappy, there's always sort of this impetus to solve the problem. And sometimes that's not what's needed. Sometimes there just needs to be space for these emotions that we don't just want to brush under the carpet. Just by sitting with another person and allowing them to think through what those experiences are is so much more helpful than to act as though if you just put on a happy face, it won't be such a big deal. What I also like about these is that they're reflected back to the person that's in pain or that's going through a hard time. A lot of times people also try to make their response about them. And I don't think that's helpful as well. It's like, I hear you. I see you. Tell me more. Not this sort of like, yeah, I totally know what you're going through because honestly, we don't. We can never be inside someone's head. And so I like that these are like asking probing questions or reflecting back to the person who is in crisis. And that idea of like everything happening for a reason, I just, I I don't like that because sometimes there is no reason. So that one always irks me as well. I think we've done an interesting job kind of like at least opening up this conversation. But I think this is a really important topic to continue on, especially uh, at the beginning of the year, but also throughout the year as the pandemic continues to move through our countries all over the world. If our listeners wanted to get a hold of us and maybe chime in on this conversation or offer some of their input about this idea of toxic positivity, where can they find us online? We are online on Instagram at PhD in Parenting. And then if you would like to send us an email, you can do that as well at PhD in Parenting Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening again this week. We look forward to coming back to another episode with you soon. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.